Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, thank you for being with us on Wednesday, September 27th. I should have said good evening. Greetings, always lovely to have you on board. It is anything but a stable world in which we live. And I'm mindful that as you write to me, you're grappling with all sorts of problems, many beyond your control. On this program, woke has no home. I'll try to present with clarity issues that matter to people in Struggle Street. It's not long until this referendum on The Voice I only have one question to the Prime Minister and his yes advocates and yes supporters. If the referendum is an overwhelming no vote, will you accept the decision? Or will we see what one writer has called today almighty tantrums from the elites? Already it's being said that a no vote is a win for populist politics. You mean a democratic poll can be dismissed in such a way? Will we then hear that Dutton was the wrecker in the proposal for constitutional change. You see, the real wreckers are those who proposed this referendum, believing apparently that the majority of Australians would accept that one particular group of Australians is entitled to a greater say than others. Now, I've said many times, we changed the words to the national anthem. Australians, let us all rejoice for we are one and free. If we are one, why are there two flags on the Harbour Bridge, each raised to the same height? If Indigenous Australians are part of Australia, as they are in every way, what is this business about an Indigenous flag? Why not an Italian flag and a Greek flag and a Lebanese flag? They've all helped pioneer this country and added enormously to its cultural strengths. One flag. Thank you very much. One flag. So if the voters know, will they try to argue that we're all on the wrong side of history? David Cameron lost the Brexit vote. With great dignity, he immediately resigned. Will we see resignations from the government, from the boardrooms, from sporting leadership? How can these people retain credibility when they are so comprehensively wrong and seek to denigrate those who dare to vote no? Well, business has found its voice. Of course, it always does when self-interest prevails. But you'll never hear business leaders say how diabolical our education system is when they seek to employ people and find out that they can't spell or punctuate. For business, you can always back self-interest. It's the hot favourite in the business race. Now they're saying, I mean saying, having I might add with characteristic ignorance supported the voice. Well, now they're saying the almost 800 pages of industrial relations changes are outdated, limited and flawed. And they will cost employers up to 9 billion in wages over the next decade. All of that is true, by the way. And it's all well and fine. But it's only rhetoric. What is business with all its clout going to do about it? Or is it yet again too frightened to take on government? Well, of course it is. Business sucks up to government, doesn't it? That's what it does. On another piece of legislation, these misinformation and disinformation laws, which is shorthand for the government trying to shut up its critics, I see Joe de Bruin, the former head of the Shoppies Union, rightly says, the legislation will, quote, muzzle ordinary citizens and lead the nation down the path of Putin's Russia or Xi's China. Now, Joe de Bruin is the former National Secretary of the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association and rightly says 
that the draft leg legislation will give, quote, faceless bureaucrats, unquote, the power to restrict free speech. Now, remember, the aim of this legislation is to grant the Australian Communications and Media Authority, ACMA, bureaucrats, the power to fine social media and others, you and me if they like, for misinformation and disinformation content that the bureaucracy deems harmful. Who decides that something is disinformation? Silly question. Bureaucrats doing a government's bidding. We've seen in coronavirus, the greatest proponents of misinformation were government. They're exempt. As Yoda Bruin says, free speech is, quote, a hallmark of democracy. The ability of any citizen to express their opinions within reasonable limits of defamation and avoiding hateful and abusive language has been an essential component of our democracy for many years. Joe Bruin said the Labor Party had, quote, a long and proud history of promoting democracy and free speech. Keep it that way. Well, the Albanese government got 32% of the vote at the last election. I don't think they've got a mandate to ignore people like Joe De Bruin. And what about this? The banks again. The federal court has ordered ANZ to pay a $15 million penalty, piddling amount, I might add, after ANZ admitted misleading customers as to the funds available in certain credit card accounts. Let me explain, because this is beyond disgraceful. The bank was telling customers they could obtain a cash advance from funds stated to be their available funds without incurring fees or interest. Now, I suppose we should pay more attention to what's in our bank accounts, but available funds, here you can have the money and it's there, it's in your account, that's okay. No fees, no interest. But 186,000 accounts that we know of were charged cash advance fees. They were charged interest when they were promised there would be none. ANZ reckons that they sought to fix up the mistake and provided remediation payments of $8.3 million, another piddling amount, except some customers were charged thousands of dollars in fees and the average remediation payment was around $45 per affected account. They were in breach, ANZ Bank, of the ASIC Act and the ASIC Deputy Chair, Sarah Court, said the breach was another example of systematic failure in financial institutions that has a significant impact on customers. That's a bit of an understatement. Remember when we were kids, there was a saying that something was as safe as a bank. Now not even our money is safe, and nor are we safe from being ripped off. Well, dear me, Albo's at it again. Try to frighten us on The Voice. And now he says, brace yourself for a black summer, a fire season, extreme weather, and say after me, what did he say next? What did he say next? Because of climate change. Albo, I'm happy to give you a few arithmetic lessons on carbon dioxide, but he said he accepted the science on climate change. Which science? And he was strengthening the nation's preparations for future disasters. Albo, you are kidding me. Come on, do some homework, my friend. Stop flying around the world. There are national parks declared everywhere. You can't get into some of them to backburn. Your greenie mates won't allow it. And so bad has it become that the fire trails in many national parks can't be accessed. What do I tell my viewers? Almost every crisis we face is a consequence of government action or inaction. As for strengthening the nation's preparations, talk to your Labor mates in the States, Albo, and get them to manage our national parks so that they won't be turned into an inferno if it's a hot summer. Well, the hearts of many, beating, many women are beating less quickly today.
David McCallum, the Glasgow-born actor who broke hearts in the 1960s cult show The Man From UNCLE, has died at the age of 90. He was the medical examiner in the show. Apparently, a kind and loving person. He had that mop of blonde hair and turtleneck sweaters. He was the Beatles-era heartthrob. David McCallum has upset many women out there. He's died in New York at the age of 90. Well, a massive weekend of football coming up. Queensland have much to celebrate. Broncos in the grand final of the league and the Lions in the grand final of the AFL. The Broncos at full strength against a rampaging Penrith in their fourth consecutive grand final and going for three premierships in a row. Surely tonight, Ivan, well, Cleary, the coach, must be the Dallium coach of the year. Can he lead Penrith to a third consecutive title? I have a feeling that the Broncos have the momentum. Young people are converting to rugby league because of players like the electrifying fullback Reese Walsh. Adam G will control the grand final and Brisbane have only won five games out of 16 with G in control. That shouldn't matter. I think the referees actually do a wonderful job. But why Ashley Klein and Gerard Sutton have been overlooked, I don't know. It will be G's first grand final. But he has refereed 236 matches. Let's hope the referee doesn't affect the outcome. And in Melbourne, the Brisbane Lions versus Collingwood. I don't know Jeff Brown, a corporate leader who became the Collingwood president two years ago. They were 17th on the table. Now two years on, they've got a club and a team with real momentum. The players look motivated and happy, which is important. An outstanding job by the coach Craig McRae, appointed Collingwood's coach by Brown's predecessor in 2021. Now I'm no expert on this game, but it is a game for athletes. Collingwood versus the Brisbane Lions, take your pick. I should have said, by the way, let me say it now, a terrific achievement by the Broncos coach, Kevin Walters, a really good person, a five-time premiership winner himself, written off last year, and now he's got a team who play wonderful football, highly motivated, splendidly led on the paddock by Adam Reynolds. Can they stop Penrith making it three in a row? Look, and finally talking sport, I dips me lid to an ageless Adelaide legend, Henry Young. Henry turned 100 on Tuesday, he started the day the way he apparently starts every day, tennis gear and not on the tennis courts. He apparently is the oldest registered tennis player in the world, though wasn't recognised as such by the Guinness Book of Records. That went to a uranium who was six months younger than Henry. Well, Henry didn't complain, but he did chase down the Ukrainian, challenged him to a charity match to raise funds for victims of the war in Ukraine, and the two had a hit up on the centre court at this year's Australian Open. He plays tennis with his mates at Adelaide's beautiful Memorial Drive, where years and years ago I was thrashed a few times. He plays there four times a week. He had a letter from King Charles congratulating him and said, he said, this is Henry, I can't believe it myself. I put it down to two things, wholesome thoughts and no fast women. So there you are. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones, back in a moment. Well, Daniel Andrews is gone or as he latterly wanted to be known, Dan Andrews, the man of the people. When he was in trouble, he decided to change his name. I'm a great admirer, as I said last night, of people who offer themselves for public service, and Daniel Andrews has been in the Victorian Parliament since 2002. But it is difficult to find anything that might justify arguing that Daniel Andrews made a distinguished and positive contribution to political life in Australia, excluding the business about winning elections, I suppose because quite simply, he didn't. And now he is yet another of the coronavirus mafia dictators, the modern day Hitlers, 
who have departed the scene. Scott Morrison as Prime Minister is gone. So is the South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall. Gladys Berejiklian resigned following an anti-corruption commission finding. And only two of the nine state and territory premiers remain, Anastasia Palaszczuk and the ACT's Andrew Barr, who's hopeless, I'm sorry. Palaszczuk might let yet go. I alluded yesterday to the alleged inquiry into coronavirus, which is a farce. The Prime Minister has already decided he won't have a proper recounting of the coronavirus years. He'll just narrow the focus of any inquiry to the alleged omissions and errors of his then political opponent, Scott Morrison. But 26 million Australians know better. They've already had their own inquiry. They've judged the so-called leaders as arrogant and dictatorial failures. The most significant cost of Andrew's political leadership, which will be an enduring legacy, is a state debt heading towards $200 billion, according to his government's own forward estimates. So let's have a look at this Andrew's record. Andrew's leaves behind a government drowning in scandal, as I said last night, and an economy so weak it couldn't afford, as one editorialist said, to stage the 2026 Commonwealth Games a decision that cost Victorians $380 million in compensation to the Commonwealth Games organisation and far more in lost opportunities. In fact, Victoria's mid-year budget update showed that Victoria is on track by June 2026 to owe more net debt than New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined. And remember the last budget in May? where the Treasurer imposed a so-called temporary, temporary 10-year grab on land and payroll taxes. And that led the peak body representing accountants to argue that Victoria would be, quote, the least attractive state to run a business or buy an investment property. We saw the real Daniel Andrews right from the beginning. He'd please himself, do as he liked, but a financial vandal. You will recall when he abandoned, not long, uh, not long after coming to office, the East-West Link, that would have streamlined two major road systems. It would have helped relieve commuter, commuter gridlocks, but it was a Liberal proposal. So Daniel Andrews cancelled the project. And as with the Commonwealth Games, the poor taxpayer had to pay up. $339 million to the group that had been contracted to build the road, 81 million in fees and other costs. Andrews is a disciple of the Bowen Energy Policy, pursuing this ruthless and ridiculous emissions reduction. No risk assessment, so Victorians know that power prices have risen sharply. There is resistance to further renewable energy projects. And something that I will look at, Victoria is awash with gas reserves, a stack of it. But under Daniel Andrews, the reticulation of gas to new homes has been banned. You believe this? Banned. Andrews, the vandal. Now he's gone, 10 months into a four year term. But he seems to have no apparent plans. Why is he gone in the week of the AFL Grand Final? So that his departure would not receive the kind of analysis it deserves? He repeated an old saying in politics, go when they're asking you to stay. I beg your pardon? Who is asking Daniel Andrews to stay, apart from the mad lefties who want to stand current society on its head? Andrews is going and leaving the mess for others to clean up. He would never have passed scrutiny and an appropriate inquiry into coronavirus. But his mate, Prime Minister Albanese, has given the states a free pass. Remember, it was the Andrews government's quarantining in hotels that contributed to 800 deaths. 
It was Andrews who forced Melburnians to endure some of the most draconian restrictions in the world. 262 days locked down in 2020 and 2021. 262 days, nearly a year. The first one in March 2020, 43 days, and then the longest lockdown in the world between July 9 and October 27, 111 days. And all studies since, well, not since, before, demonstrated clearly that lockdowns were no answer. What is worse, they were destructive. I made that point many times. Will we ever know how many Victorians were personally, financially and emotionally destroyed by the dictatorial edicts of Daniel Andrews? I've also said many times that the impact on business, especially Melbourne's central district, on students locked out of school and the mental health damage done to them, we will never know. People will remember the 8pm to 5am curfew. Couldn't go anywhere. He was a deeply authoritarian man, the kind of bloke who had refused to be interviewed, didn't want to deal with hostile or penetrating questions. He just did it. He loved secrecy. Remember when he went to China recently? He didn't even let journalists cover the visit. Taxpayers paid for it. He signed Victoria up to the Chinese Communist Party's Belt and Road Initiative. The move was opposed by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, opposed by the Morrison government, and indeed by the Labor opposition, but Daniel Andrews went on with it. His supporters would argue that he possessed formidable skills of political theatre. Well, here is a manifestation of that political theatre, and people today should not forget it. in relation to a Facebook post, in relation to a lockdown protest. They were cracking down on offending of a different kind, a group of men who were not wearing face masks. One, two, three, four, five. You're arresting someone for no reason. Leave him alone! Leave him alone! Leave him alone! What the f are you doing? What the f are of them came and arrested me and put my hands in handcuffs and it's like... <laughs> Is that the political theatre we're talking about? Obviously, he enjoyed a pathetic opposition, but equally he refused to be accountable, Daniel Andrews. He thought he could talk his way out of anything and he did. Remember when he won the 2018 election and then we had the red shirts scandal, the misuse of taxpayers' money for political purposes by the Labor Party during the previous election, 2014. A win-at-all-costs style, which brought us the red shirt scandal, basically. The Victorian ALP, under Andrew's leadership, cheated the taxpayer of more than $400,000 to fund the 2014 election campaign. Then remember, he awarded a $1.2 million contract to the Labor-affiliated Health Workers Union. Then when the Anti-Corruption Commission reported into the matter, Andrews insisted there were no findings against anyone. When in fact, the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission found, quote, evidence of misconduct and improper influence at the highest levels of government. Didn't worry Daniel Andrews. Then we had his mate from the socialist left, Lily D'Ambrosio, the Energy and Resources Minister, branch stacking. She was treated differently because she was in his faction from the four ministers who lost their jobs over branch stacking. 
The Red Shirts fiasco was about taxpayers' money being used to service the Labor Party. Well, this woman, Lily D'Ambrosio, had branch meetings in her electorate office once a month, long after the Ombudsman report into the Red Shirts wrought highlighted the misuse of taxpayer-funded resources. The cost of all of this, of course, a state debt closing in on $200 billion. Then there were the major projects which were announced and started with little attention to how they would be paid for. The Metro Tunnel, Westgate Tunnel, Suburban Rail Loop, and of course, infamously, the 2026 Commonwealth Games. They're about winning votes, not reshaping the state. Is this how Daniel Andrews reshaped the state? Disgraceful, isn't it? Absolutely disgraceful. The bloke should be in the dock. Simple. He should be made to answer for all of that. Anyway, he's now gone and a new leader has to be appointed. Under the ALP rules, nominations for leader have to be opened at today's ALP caucus meeting and remain open for three days. If more than one nomination were received, a vote would have to go to a ballot of Labor members and state caucus. But Jacinta Allen, the Deputy Premier from the Socialist Left has been declared the new leader, unopposed. Some leader. Jacinta Allen is the new Premier of Victoria Copthis. You've just seen all those pictures. She congratulated Mr Andrews on his, quote, unparalleled legacy that has changed our state forever and for the better. Thank you for your leadership and your friendship. I'll be putting myself forward to lead our party and continue the extraordinary work of our Labor government, unquote. So there you are. She endorsed all that. Are we going to get more of the same? Greg Sheridan writing today in the Australian newspaper says this, Daniel Andrews is one of the most ruthlessly effective political leaders Australian politics has produced and also, by a considerable distance, one of the worst state premiers we have ever seen in substance. Andrews has always been, he said, writes of the Labor's socialist left, and has pursued identity politics, radical education policies, and legislative practices to restrict the freedoms of Christian schools and institutions. He writes, this had political as well as ideological motives, trying to fend off the green challenge to Labor's inner city seats, and contemptibly, Andrews refused to say he respected the High Court's acquittal of Cardinal George Pell." Unquote. As Greg Sheridan also says, so say all of us, Andrews leaves behind a nearly bankrupt state with compromised institutions and a toxic political culture. Hopefully, we won't see his like again.
Well, as you know, and I think you'd agree, Jacinta Price has elevated herself to a position of real significance within the Australian political scene. She is a senator, but if the coalition had an ounce of intellect about winning government, they would transfer Jacinta Price to a safe seat in the House of Representatives. She is prime ministerial material. And that has been demonstrated in her prosecution of the no case. Make no mistake, the collapse in the yes vote for the referendum only a couple of weeks away can be directly attributed to the fact that Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine, two Indigenous Australians, have simply told the truth, while the other side have sought to demonise anyone committed to voting no. As I said at the outset, and I hate the word, but the real racists, sadly, are those who seek to insert race into the Constitution. This is a race-based change to the Constitution. Forget the detail that we haven't been given. We cannot divide this country on race. Remember last night I shared with you the views of an educated Indigenous woman, Dilapuma Wulanginu, who lives at Elko Island, which is a tiny island of Arnhem Land. And she argued simply, and I quote her, the voice is being pushed by black elites for their agenda. She said, this is a dangerous move. We must protect the Australian constitution with all our might. We cannot allow those people to use emotional blackmail and guilt to secure their abuse of power, unquote. Now, there are many Indigenous people, not just Jacinda Price and Warren Mundine, who argue, as did the Puma, that, quote, the voice is being pushed by black elites for their agenda. Well, I have literally been inundated with correspondence from an outfit in Queensland of which I had never heard. The Gulf Regional Economic Aboriginal Trust now, members on the board of this Economic Aboriginal Trust include mayors from remote communities, native title representatives and Aboriginal leaders. And their sole focus for many years has been supporting and building up Indigenous communities with business development. They would argue that a lot of the issues in these communities are a consequence of poor economic conditions. A recent report from the Queensland Productivity Commission validated their claims, quote, without economic development, the report said, communities will remain heavily welfare dependent and continue to live with the negative impacts of dependency. Well, Fred Pascoe is the CEO of the Gulf Regional Ab Economic Aboriginal Trust based in Cairns. It goes under the acronym of GOAT, G-O-A-T. He is a Fred is a prominent Aboriginal leader in far north Queensland, and they have, as I said, this acronym for Gulf Economic. <laughs> I'll get, I've never heard of this. I've done a lot of work on this, by the way, in the last week, but it amazes me that it's the Gulf Regional, G for Gulf, R for Regional, E for Economic, A for Aboriginal, T for Trust, which is great. And Fred Pascoe, along with his colleagues at the Great seem to be of the opinion that the Albanese Labor government's proposal for an Indigenous voice to Parliament has not been accompanied by enough information to support a yes vote. Well, Fred joins me to places where we haven't been. I think he's somewhere up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Fred, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me. Just tell our viewers geographically, where are you? Thank you, Mr. Jones. I'm in Normanton, which oh. is in the Gulf of Carpentaria, yeah. which is in northwest Queensland. Yeah, I know that. I know where Normanton is, I've got to tell you. I went to boarding school with some boys from Normanton. Now, this great, as I understand it, is 100% Aboriginal owned. You've got to say this slowly. 100% Aboriginal owned 
with a $30 million balance sheet, no debt, self-funded. Is that right, Fred? That's correct. That's correct. We, we came out of a, we were formed um, out of an original mining agreement and we've used that mining agreement to uh, stimulate economic development in our region and economic development perpetuates itself, Helen. So um, we've done some wonderful things. We've made some mistakes and we've learned from those mistakes, but we believe we know what works on our, our in our communities and what 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 closes the gap, if you like, yes. in all of those areas. Just, and, just and fill it's us all in. Underpinned by just fill us in. I mean, you're not a new boy on the block. Uh, you've been in operation what for thirty years. That's correct. We uh, we were formed in 1998, and uh, and we've operated since then. Um, we, we we're currently known as Great, as you said, the Gulf Regional Economic Aboriginal Trust. Um, and and basically, we came about because we saw the need to do something in our region. We saw the need to improve the quality of life and to change uh, some of the bad things and to improve the good things and, more importantly, to drive home the things that work, that work in our community. See, I'm just saying to my viewers, isn't it extraordinary? Like me, you've never heard of this outfit. They're unbelievably successful. I've done a lot of reading on them in what they've done for Indigenous Australians. And amongst this all, Fred, you've argued for years that the quote-unquote solution to the issues facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, which is tried and tested by you over 30 years but keeps getting ignored by government, the answer, economic development to keep these communities off welfare. So am I right in saying that you've supported and built up these communities with business development, uh, with support, business loans, very rigorous conditions, I might add, and scholarships. Um, just tell us something about the success stories. Okay, well, the one of the latest success stories is is we went and built a $12 million supermarket in, in the township of Normanton um, to combat several things, combat the, the cost of living, to provide uh, high-quality, cost-affordable uh, groceries and fruit and vegetables uh, to our community and to provide employment uh, opportunities for Indigenous people. We've smashed our targets in all of those areas. where We employ something like uh, 35 people and probably 95% of them are local Aboriginal people and we have a range from 50-year-old grandmothers to... 16-year-old school leavers, and uh, and 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 they they are proud to work in in our facility. Uh, they are proud to work for their community. If we look at the 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 effects of cost of living, and cost of living affects everybody, black, white, and brindle, and it's magnified in rural, remote areas. And we've got a good vehicle. We we've got a, a ways to go, but we're we're streamlining uh, bulk purchasing um, strategies. We're we're looking at making the, the uh, just because we live in rural remote Australia, the experience of going to a supermarket and being able to afford and, and to access nutritious uh, fruit and vegetables, groceries, etc. there's no reason why we can't do that 
um, as well as or, or or give the same opportunity to someone on the East oh, Coast of brilliant. Australia. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. Just in relation to GREAT and your organisation, how many Indigenous Australians in this broad reach, I mean, Norman's a long way from Cairns, I know you're based in Cairns, uh, how many Indigenous Australians do you think you've gathered in under the umbrella of GREAT? Well, in the Gulf regions, and, and GREAT covers, as you said, the, the shires, the uh, land councils, uh, uh, large Indigenous organisations, the PBCs, the prescribed body corporates. Um, look, the Gulf, give or take one or two, probably got a population of 10 to 12,000 people. Um, it, it includes the, the uh, townships of Doomadgee, Mornington, the lower Gulf, which is the area I'm talking about, Doomadgee, Mornington, Burkdown, Normandon, Corumba, uh, Gregory, so it includes people from those things and associated outstations. Um, and so, and yeah, all of these, and all of these, and all of these indigenous people have come on side, have they? They they agree and are active participants in what you're trying to do. Because I read that what you're saying, which I think is a really important point, that these initiatives you've just talked about, and you mentioned the supermarket and so on, have a ripple effect. And you would argue it great that they help alleviate crime, health issues, education, attendance, general purpose and well-being in life. I mean, the guts of it is, and, and that's why I said I pride myself on being on top of things, but governments, you've handed governments these results, have you not, time and time again? I understand there are reports from government-funded departments saying what you do, but governments continue to go around in circles focusing on dead-end funding solutions and you're ignored. Yep. Alan, just a couple of things. I just We've still got a ways to go. I mean, I don't think any one organisation can claim 100% support. Uh, we do have our knockers, we do have our critics, black and white. Um, so we've got a way to go, but we are... We are leading the charge, and and more importantly, what we are doing is is kicking goals. We've still got a we've still got a way to go. I'll I'll, I'll admit that up front. And yes, look, when we heard of the voice uh, come out, we actually wrote a letter to Minister Burney, and we said your four pillars are great: housing, education, employment, um, and health, all great. But you need economic development to underpin it. Because if you, if you want to make changes in these areas, if you want to make intergenerational change, in our 30 years of operating, economic development is the vehicle that you need to drive. So you would say, would you not, and correct me if I'm wrong in sort of paraphrasing what I've read about you, that the issues facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are largely a consequence of government action or, or inaction. I mean, you've got a $30 million balance sheet, self-funded, no debt. And for 30 years, as I understand, as I read, chairmen and women of GREAT have seen that nothing the government has done has worked. So you're saying you don't need a voice. You need someone with ears to listen. We need ears to listen. But should they, should they listen, we can tell them about our real-life experience. We can tell them about we live here. We know what works in our communities. We know if they want to combat domestic violence. We've seen strategies that, that work and we've seen strategies that fail and we need to learn from those strategies that fail. If they want to talk about education, we can tell them about the businesses that we have de developed, funded and implemented and operate 
and what works there. What what makes a black fella get up and want to come to work? We can talk to them about those experiences. They need to listen. Yes, just amazing. You speak magnificently, Fred. I've got to tell you, um, you are one of Australia's largest social enterprises. So. Am I right? You've offered these proven solutions to government. I think there are two documents at least, and you've never received a response from government. No, we haven't, which is disappointing, which is disappointing. But um, as I said, we're, we're still quite willing to sit down with them. Um, let me be upfront, Alan, and honest. What we have now is not working. So we need to drive change. And it, change needs to come from within. Uh, uh, if, if you want to talk about resolving issues um, with an industry, within a thing, you've got to go and talk to the people that it affects. So that's, what, that's, the, that's the olive branch that we're offering out to government to, to say, come and talk to us because but I am tired but Fred, of they seeing programs But like they don't, Fred. I mean, you've provided documents to them. You've had no response. They don't even give you a direction, as I understand it, to anyone to whom you can speak. So no one, yeah. no one basically in government is looking at what actually works. That's the issue here, isn't it? Mate, I can give you one real example. We, I went to Brisbane four times last year. We've made the offer to go to Canberra. Youth crime. We come up with what we believe is a solution to youth crime in our, in our region and the concept we believe could be picked up and transplanted anywhere. They wouldn't listen to us. We couldn't even get in the ease of a minister. We got we got punted down the down the chain of command, down the DGs, down the regional managers, and uh, and I had leaders. I had leaders from the Gulf come with me. We had we had mayors, we had CEOs, Indigenous CEOs, come with us. Stag and staggering. They wouldn't staggering. No, well, Jacinta's dad had the same experiences before she was a member of Parliament. I'd talk to Jacinta regularly. And she'd say, I go to Canberra and I can't even get a meeting with anybody. And she was explaining the problems that existed in the Northern Territory. I was noting, a Fred, a 2017, I think it was, report from the Queensland Productivity Commission on Economic and Community Development. Now, this is a government-funded department, and it stated blatantly that government involvement can exacerbate the problem. Now, the report in 2017 said, without economic development, communities remain heavily welfare dependent and continue to live with the negative impacts of dependency. And those negative impacts are exactly what Fred's alluded to. That's poor health, housing issues, lack of jobs, low school attendance, and of course, mental health issues and a lack of purpose. So you've created through great approaches, and you say they're not perfect, but approaches that work. And I just want to repeat, government, are not interested in listening. That's our experience today. Amazing. Look, I want to congratulate you. I'm really glad. I mean, you're being seen tonight across Australia, indeed across the world. We go to America and everywhere. I just want to congratulate you on the work you're doing. But surely it's valid to argue that you're running Australia's largest Aboriginal social enterprise, more than 30 years experience with mayors, native title holders and Aboriginal leaders on the board, but government doesn't want to know about you. Just one final point. Did you and your organisation reach out to the Prime Minister and the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Linda Burney, and even the Treasurer before they announced their four pillars and you got nowhere? Yeah, we've reached out certainly to uh, Minister Burney. Uh, we have had discussions in the past with the uh, Treasurer's office and, uh, and nothing. Alan, 
can I say, I've got to be totally honest with you. Um, I respect you and I admire your point of view. I see you as very much as a straight shooter. And I like a straight shooter because I know who I'm dealing with and I, and I know there's no bullshit, no BS. Pardon the French. No, that's not French at all. I'm actually, I'm <laughs> actually going to support, I'm, I'm actually going to vote yes for The Voice for one reason. Basically, what we got now is not working. I, I, I take on your point, but the only reason The Voice is going to work is if they include and they beat the drum on economic development. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you and I are going to be sitting around here Talking about mm. this thing for you know years down the track, we've we've got to drive change. I'm tired of going to funerals. Yeah. I'm tired of meeting families at cemeteries because mm. in these communities there are years when we have more deaths than we have births. You know, mm. we've got to change. And and the only thing said, there, Fred, is the only thing, Fred. There is no one voice that speaks for Indigenous Australia, is there? And, and it seems to me, as you say, without detail. Look, I, I respect what you've just said then, by the way. I just want to ask you one thing. If you could speak to the Prime Minister now about The Voice and about GREAT, your organisation, what would you say? I'd say come and have a look at what we've done. Come and have a look at what, what we found has worked and what the vehicle that you've got to drive is economic development. If you want jobs, if, if you want to a purpose in life to get their shit together, to get their health together, their mental health and their physical health. If you want to get kids to have role models so they can go to school and gain an education. If you want people to turn houses into homes so that they can look after them, so that they don't wreck them, so that they can maintain them. Economic development is the one thing that underpins all of those areas. Brilliant. Brilliant. Not good. Brilliant. Fred, I congratulate you on your work. It's been an eye-opener to all of us. And uh, the least I can say is that I wish you well. And we'll talk again. Alan, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to at least host us on your show. Thank Not you very at all. much. Not at all. Fred, there is Fred Pascoe and that's GOAT, G-O-A-T, and they're based in Cairns. Fred was talking to me from Normanton in the Gulf. Look, I'm at a loss to know who is advising the Dutton opposition. Peter Dutton is a man of ability, make no mistake about that, and he has excellent insights and splendid values. And yes, you don't want an opposition that just opposes. But at the same time, if you've got a bad government, you have to let the public know what you oppose. As I said yesterday, and I'll keep saying it, why would an opposition give up searching for answers on the Brittany Higgins allegedly $3 million payment? Why would that not be front and centre of everything the opposition prosecutes? It's the same with energy policy. Why do the public not know, as I raised with Matt Canavan last night, whether the opposition are going to go over the cliff with Cliff Bowen, uh, Chris Bowen. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I'm not used to using his Christian name. Over the cliff with Chris Bowen. I mean, are the federal opposition into this net zero rubbish, which the rest of the world is now backing away from? Why doesn't the opposition continue to prosecute the case as to why Qantas was preferred by the Albanese government when Qatar was locked out from increasing their flights to Australia? affecting the price of airfares. Why doesn't the opposition prosecute in detail and regularly the fact that we have industrial relations legislation before the parliament that's 784 pages with 500 pages of explanatory memorandum? How the hell can anyone digest that? Does the electorate know, as I asked Matt Canavan last night, that it is legislation, it's legislated, that we must, Australia must secure 80% of our electricity from renewable energy by 2030. 
I mean, that's law, 80%. Why isn't that being prosecuted for its stupidity? Because it will fail. Then, as I've said, this pathetic, weak and evasive announcement that will be an inquiry into Australia's response to the pandemic. The opposition should be shouting from the rooftops that state governments must be made accountable. The terms of reference must be altered to include investigation into the behaviour and responses of state governments. I mean, you've seen those pictures on Daniel, Daniel Andrews. Shouldn't Daniel Andrews be called to account for this stuff? Give the inquiry the powers of a royal commission. Why is the Albanese government protecting its Labor mates in the States? Why aren't we getting answers as to why these lockdowns occurred with Daniel Andrews and here with Berejiklian? Why were schools closed? Why were the borders shut? Why were businesses denied doing business? Why couldn't you go to the funeral of a relative? Why couldn't you leave your home? Surely you'd be thumping the dispatch box seeking answers and pointing them out. Why did New South Wales people wake up to see uniformed people brandishing guns? And you'd look at Albanese across the dispatch box. Why did you give state governments immunity from the inquiry? Sit down, see what he says. Why isn't this being prosecuted by the federal opposition? And then the takeover of Calvary Hospital by the ACT government seems completely ignored by the federal opposition. And yet uh, the overview of the ACT is in the hands of the federal government. Why aren't they going after the Albanese government on this Calvary issue and the others I've mentioned, thumping the dispatch box and setting themselves up in opposition to this catalogue of failure? Why isn't the federal opposition saying that the notion that the takeover of Calvary Hospital would improve healthcare is a lie? This takeover was part of a broader platform by the Greens and by the abortion providers to expand abortion and euthanasia to all Australian healthcare providers, including those run by religious institutions. Now, of course, there was a grassroots campaign to oppose all this, to stop the takeover, but the federal opposition has dropped off. And there is a limit to what the public can do. So the story is, or it's not a national issue, it's ACT story, leave it alone. And the Albanese government, is allowed to ignore the issue. Senator Matt Canavan, to whom I spoke last night, wanted an inquiry. The Albanese government ran for cover. Surely this means we've got a government in Canberra which is anti-faith. It seems not to want anyone with a religiously formed conscience to have any place in the public square. Angela Shanahan, writing in the Australian newspaper, said, time and again, despite their denial and the Prime Minister's denial, it is a precedent if one looks at the history of this, that goes back to 2010, it is easy to see that this is, this is the takeover of Calgary, that it's ideologically motivated by an anti-religion and anti-pluralist outlook, masquerading as social policy. So the Calvary Hospital goes, and there's barely a whimper. A Catholic institution, when the Prime Minister says, the Catholic face courses through his veins, but he doesn't attend the funeral of George Pell. There are now signs that there'll be a national crackdown on hospitals that don't provide abortions. Guardian Australia recently reported on how a woman being treated at Melbourne's Mercy Hospital was shocked, quote unquote shocked, during pregnancy complications when she learnt that the hospital would not assist with the termination of her pregnancy because the, the hospital had a Catholic affiliation. And she said, I was kind of shocked. It's a public hospital and we're a secular country. It didn't make sense. The midwife agreed. It was a silly policy, but her hands were tied, unquote. Well, the mother subsequently delivered her baby without complications. She had wanted the pregnancy terminated. Where, will someone tell me, is the federal opposition? 
The Catholic Church has had a go at this social upheaval. It's Australia's largest religious denomination, the Catholic Church. It tried to mount a campaign against the takeover of Calvary Hospital, but support for religious institutions and religious freedoms in the federal and state Labor governments is almost nil. There's an agenda behind all this. Calvary was a test case, and now it appears successful. What comes next? The opposition's job is to oppose that which is not in the public interest. And all that I have mentioned in this brief editorial highlights the fact that the Albanese government on too many fronts is not acting in the public interest. We need an opposition in the public place with energy and drive like Jacinta Price. Repeat the message. These are things the opposition opposes. Spell them out. Let the public know and then let the public judge. I'll tell you one thing. If you prosecute, the, prosecute these cases properly, the public will be clapping their hands and cheering you on. Look, let's go to Peggy in the United States. I spoke earlier, as you know, about this so-called inquiry into coronavirus. It is a sham because the Albanese government, as I told you last night, have exempted from investigation the Labor mates in the States. Is Daniel Andrews resigning because something might be found out? Who knows? The reality is that all these state premiers and chief medical officers, most with no epidemiological qualifications, just imposed their dictatorial will, as you know, on all Australians and stole our freedoms. And you know the story. Massive lockdowns, businesses broke, kids couldn't go to school, families couldn't leave their homes, you couldn't attend the funeral of a dying relative. Yet the states will go scot-free. It appears that in America, so will this other dangerous fake, Anthony Fauci. And I want to have a look at that. And let's go to Peggy. Peggy, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. What about this Anthony Fauci, America's public health czar? He's now been slammed by a top Oxford scientist for claiming masks work to stop COVID-19, when indeed all the epidemiological evidence disputes that. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on, Alan. You know, I think Australia, similarly to the United States, learned a valuable lesson, and I don't think we will fall prey to it again. But Anthony Fauci should, like you said last week, should probably be in jail. I mean, this is a man who didn't want the truth. He wanted to cover up his own inter interactions with funding the Wuhan lab against US policy. And so this is somebody who's wildly unpopular. He never wanted truth. He wanted consensus not based on scientific evidence, and in fact was willing to contradict scientific evidence that all pointed in one direction, especially with the masks, and then you add in the vaccines, and this is a man who has lost all credibility here. Absolutely. Now, this, just to clarify, this Oxford University epidemiologist, Tom Jefferson, said Dr. Fauci was relying on, quote, trash studies. Now, Biden's wife, of course, developed mild COVID-19 a couple of weeks ago, and so I suppose they're going to try and reinstate the wearing of masks. But Dr. Jefferson was one of 12 authors of an authoritative 305-page Cochrane analysis. Now, this is relevant to us here. All these wood ducks here who told us we had to do things and took away our freedom are comprehensively proven wrong. And this 305-page Cochrane analysis published in January, it assessed 78 high-quality scientific studies that included more than 610,000 participants. And the study concluded that masking made no difference 
in stopping such a virus. It was blunt in its conclusions, quote, there is no evidence masks make any difference. Now I have to point out, I made all of those points months ago because I read stuff and I was canceled for saying it. Now, as the South Australian barrister said to me here last week, there were no trials run on any of these vaccines. And the Oxford University epidemiologist is saying, what we know, he said, what I do know is that Fauci was in a position to run a trial. He could have randomised two regions, one lot wearing masks and one wearing the other, and he didn't. And that is, that is the scientist said, unforgivable. Peggy, don't tell me Americans still regard Fauci as credible. Well, they don't. And I think that we should stop doing these studies if we're not even going to listen to them and let our science and our thinking evolve as the evidence comes out. Thankfully, we aren't listening to Dr. Fauci anymore. He retired from government service. But it's interesting to note that when he retired, he declared a net worth of $11 million. Two million of that he accrued during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so while Americans were losing their jobs, their homes, their businesses, their life savings and their livelihoods, Dr. Fauci was getting wealthy. And whether it was deals with the vaccine or the Wuhan lab or these mask companies, who knows? But he certainly got wealthy on a very tragic time for America and the world. We know the left cannot wait to bring back the COVID and masking hysteria just in time for the 2024 election. We hope that the American people and your people as well in Australia will push back on this. There's no science to back it. See, the thing here, Peggy, and you know this because you've worked at the highest levels of government, uh, the ordinary bloke in the street sees a premier or a prime minister or a chief health officer invested with certain authority and therefore they yield and go along with all of that. I mean, Fauci put on social media, and I quote his exact words, masks are really for infected people to prevent them from spreading infection to people that are not infected. Now, as a result of this Fauci, as here, with Morrison and Frydenberg and all of these people, Berejiklian, Daniel Andrews, I'll look at that uh, in the program tonight, but as a result of Fauci, governments around the world began to mandate masks for hundreds of millions of people. But Peggy, as you know, as you walk around America, I walk around Australia, it's still out there. People have been frightened and intimidated by all of this and they believe they must wear a mask. Of course, and Fauci said all along, just trust me, trust me, I'm the science, just trust me and listen to me. And we know that there's no evidence to back that up. And unfortunately, a lot of people did follow his advice and we're seeing that they're eager to go right back into the lockdowns again. Thankfully, we've got the House Republicans who also are on this. And there's actually a movement right now to defund public universities who are requiring vaccine mandates. Now, while that probably won't go anywhere, it's just a wake-up call and kind of a warning shot across the bow to the left that we are not going to put up with this again. We're not going to allow these dictators in government to dictate how we're going to live our lives. Mm, and mm. I don't think people are going to comply again. Mm. But you see, the issue here too, which for, about which we can't get any information, say in Australia, and it's true in America, how much were these big pharmaceutical companies paid for the vaccines and the boosters and it was just a license to print money, billions and billions of dollars. Now, as a result of what, and, and we've never been told that, I constantly ask for a piece of paper, can't get it from anybody. And the opposition here, I'm saying to my Australian viewers now, although we're going, Peggy's, this segment goes to America as well, but to our Australian viewers, I'm saying to the opposition, why don't you ask 
the government to produce the figures about all of this. How much did we pay Big Pharma? Now, if you take what Fauci has said, because he was the world authority. I mean, he set the tone and the pattern of behaviour. Well, global mask sales surged in 2020 to 378 billion units. In 2019, 12.5 billion masks. 378 billion people made a fortune out of what Fauci was saying. That's equivalent to about 50 masks per person. Oh, Peggy, I know the Republican And why didn't the environmentalists scream about that? We should have heard screaming from the highest levels, from the environmentalists, all those masks going to waste. And these people will do it again because they have never been held to account. Anthony Fauci himself gets on TV regularly and says, I never called for masking. I never called for school lockdowns. I never called for businesses and churches and gyms and schools to close. And we know that's not true because we have it on tape. And yet he continues to deny it. And so he'll continue to get away with this. But to your point, not only did he lead America astray, in many ways he led the world astray. And that's unforgivable Absolutely. in my book and in the book but of he also he, he also funded the laboratory research in the laboratory from which it's now quite yes. clear this virus escaped. I mean, Fauci was in this up to his neck. Where are we? Uh, we'll just get off this in a minute, but where are we with this Republican Senator, J.D. Vance from Ohio, who has said he'd introduce a Freedom to Breathe Act to ensure that, quote, no federal bureaucracy, no commercial airline and no public school can impose the misguided policies of the past. We tried mask mandates. They failed to control the spread of respiratory viruses, violated basic bodily freedom and set our fellow citizens against one another. Now, where is the, the proposal by J.D. Vance? Well, it went up for a vote. It's not going to advance even out of committee, but he did want people to get on the record for this. And I think it was a really smart move because this is a bipartisan issue at this point. We've got Republicans and Democrats who are completely against the shutting down of schools, the shutting down of businesses, the masking of our children, the vaccinating of our children. You know, Joe Biden and his administration just bought tens of millions of doses of the new variant updated COVID vaccine. And people People across both sides of the political aisle are saying, I'm not going to get this. And so it's a huge waste of government money. I think we need to have accountability. And I love that the Republicans are showing leadership on this. Even if they can't get it across the line, they know where those votes mm -hmm. will stand. And those those senators and House members are going to have to answer to their constituencies when they go to the uh, voting. Absolutely. See, just on what Trump has been saying for months and months, what about this federal court ruling that the White House, the FBI, and other agencies, un this is a federal court ruling, unconstitutionally trampled on America's free speech rights during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now that trampling occurred here, of course. Peggy, they spend their time closing down Donald Trump. Now, one of they frightened of Trump being re-elected, he would line this lot up and get rid of them and that should happen, surely. Absolutely. And the case you're talking about actually started in July and it broadly criticized 
the White House, the FBI, and health officials for um, colluding and with big tech and social media to pressure mm. social media to take yeah. down or yes. to sort of put down in the search the search engines, um, these things that disagreed with their narrative. Now, just recently here in September, that case was actually upheld. And so it really is a win for conservatives and for free speech. It's going to the Supreme Court will th where they will have an opportunity to decide. But once again, the left, they claim they want to have free speech, but they only want free speech when it is convenient for them. And they certainly don't want anybody to speak freely if it contradicts the narrative that they are trying to push. They uh, don't want equal application of the law. Absolutely. They want to control the law, which is what they're doing with this administration, yeah, I mean, weaponizing it. If it was coronavirus or Donald Trump, for example, or climate change, social media platforms won't print it. They won't run it. It's cancelled. Right. It's left right. off. This or is what we're talking about, freedom of speech. So low, you couldn't find it even if you were looking for it. And yeah. so they can optimize it or not. And they pressured these social media companies and thankfully they got caught and called out in court and maybe made to make reckoning for it. Yeah, well, thank God for Elon Musk. Now, just on uh, Trump, he now appears, now appears to be a mile in front of Biden at the polls. Some polls say 10%. This question I ask you every week, and I'll ask you again because you're always got your ear to the ground, is the end near for the Biden bid to run again? I mean, we've talked about this Gavin Newsom before, the California governor, Newsom last week, Saturday our time, torpedoed the California bill AB 957, which had the overwhelming support, the bill of his party, of the Democratic Party in the biggest US state. So it passed the Democratic controlled assembly, 57 to 16. Newsom vetoed it. This was a bill about transgender rights where if, cop this, this is what the legislation was about. If you disagree with the other parent about sterilising your child, you lose custody of that child. That was approved by the Assembly in California, but Newsom, the governor, vetoed it, which has outraged the transgender activists and his own Democrat supporters. Peggy, is Newsom lining himself up to look a bit more conservative than Biden? Well, he may have tried to with that one vote, but he certainly can't counterbalance the crime, the drugs, the homelessness, the taxes, the failing schools, all the reasons that people are leaving California. And so one vote maybe that angered a few people in California is not going to change the opinions of the rest of Californians who are disgusted with his policies. He's taken a beautiful state with all kinds of natural resources and human talent, is absolutely running it into the ground. And you're right with Donald Trump. He continues to rise in the polls. And so I'm not sure what the Democrats are going to do. The latest poll you quoted, which shows Donald Trump up by 10%, was done by the Washington Post, which is very left-leaning. We know they oversampled Democrats. And so for them to come out with a with a poll that says Donald Trump is 10 points in the lead, that has to make the Democrats very, very nervous. Gavin Newsom is not going to be their savior, but he's sure waiting in the wings to be invited onto the big stage to save the party. Mm, amazing. It's a, I think they're shot. The Democrats are shot, I think. And in spite of all these charges against Donald Trump, I think the American people are waking up and they now know that there's a very significant conspiracy. Oh, I can't say that. Well, there is a conspiracy at work amongst the great institutions of American democratic life to deny not just Donald Trump, 
but to deny credibility and validity to his supporters. And I think increasingly Democrats, including Republicans, are waking up to all of that. Peggy, always great to hear from you and your insights, and we'll talk next week. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America, the former executive assistant to Ronald Reagan, speaks with great authority. It's a mess, isn't it? But there's Trump. They need Trump. We need 100 Trumps to clean out thousands of swamps which exist in government and the Western world everywhere. It's a crisis, I've said many times, in Western political leadership. Whatever you think of Trump, he provides that leadership. You know exactly what he stands for and what he's going to do. Anyway, we'll talk again to Peggy next week. Now, before we go, as I've said many times, we surrendered basic freedoms during coronavirus. The problem is we may never get them back. The lesson to be learned is simple. Why should we now trust government? On coronavirus, there was no risk analysis presented to us about vaccinations or boosters, and people have died as a result. On this net zero hoax energy policy, no risk analysis done. I'm sure they're frightened to do it. The results would demonstrate quite clearly that Bowen and co are talking nonsense. Then we've got this mad push for electric vehicles. Forget the fact that there's no infrastructure recharging stations, and even if you arrived at one, you might find 10 other motorists in front of you. But I mentioned last week that electric vehicles are the latest climate change fashion, except that a Norwegian shipping company, I told you this last week, has banned electric, hybrid and hydrogen cars from its ferries. After a risk analysis, there you are, governments here don't do any, it was concluded that the risk to the safety of the shipping fleet was too significant. If an electric vehicle catches fire, they said, the fire can no longer be extinguished. And they cited last February, a ship with e-vehicles on board, the vehicles caught fire, the fire couldn't be extinguished, the ship sank. A marine consulting specialist said, a single vehicle fire could prove catastrophic, unquote. And that's what happened recently at Sydney Airport, which with these lithium ion batteries. So, has Bowen presented us with a risk analysis in relation to purchasing, driving, charging electric vehicles and disposing of the batteries? Nothing. In the first six months of this year, there has been a 20% increase in lithium battery-related fires in New South Wales. Now, these batteries are sometimes thrown into rubbish bins instead of being disposed of safely. We need more information. But in the first six months of this year, there were 114 lithium battery-related fires in New South Wales. Local councils and waste contractors are reporting a significant rise in the number of truck and rubbish fires caused by batteries which, if damaged, could explode and spark fires that are difficult to put out. But the public are not given any information. I have found it indirectly that we're supposed to take these batteries to a community recycling centre or drop them off at a dedicated recycling point, which apparently are available at large retailers like Coles and Woolworths and Bunnings and Officeworks. But then we've got everyday products with batteries embedded in them, mobile phones, laptops, power tools. They too should be disposed of at an e-waste recycling facility. Now, full marks to the New South Wales Environment Minister, Penny Sharp, new to the job, who has warned, first person that I've noted doing the, offering the warning, that while batteries do power a lot, they can be dangerous if not disposed of correctly. She said, and I quote, the community needs to understand that bins are not the place for batteries. The good news is, she said, we can recycle 95% of batteries, but at the moment, only 10% are being recycled, unquote. Now, the public haven't been informed about any of this. 
full marks to the new Emergency Services Minister in New South Wales, Jihad Dib, who has said that battery fires are difficult to extinguish and could cause significant damage to a home. The Fire and Rescue New South Wales Acting Deputy Commissioner of Field Operations, Trent Curtin, has said that firefighters were responding to an average of more than three battery fires a week from in-home charging issues or incorrect disposal. I mean, surely to good as know-alls like Bowen should be fully informing users of electric vehicles as to where the risks lie. He won't do that because he's ideologically committed to getting rid of petrol-fired cars and forcing us into electric vehicles. Mind you, he doesn't tell us where the electricity is going to come from, nor the risk. Now, ignorance can sometimes be forgiven. Arrogance from people like Bowen can't be. These people, I've told you over and over again, are dangerous. Well, that's it from me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We at ADH are immensely gratified by the growing local and international support for what we do. We've got a wonderful team, small team of people here, young, dedicated and gifted, who help bring these programs to you. Jack and Charlie, Martina, Fred and Charity. Now, don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.